Welcome to Conversations with Buddy, coming to you live from the Rec Podcast Recording Studio here in Kaiser. Actually, this morning, we're coming to you live from Church on the Hill because uh, there was apparently a seniors bowling tournament, so that's okay. We ne- learn, uh, learn how to navigate things a little bit. We drop a new podcast every Friday morning with a new story that will impact someone. Hopefully, this one will impact you. Please take a moment to share and like, but share on one of your favorite social media platforms. We want to get these messages out to the people and to impact the world one testimony at a time. This morning, I'm going to introduce you to my guest, Eric Wiley. Morning, Eric. Morning, buddy. So you made the trip down from uh, the from Portland area. Yep. So where, where exactly do you live? So I live in uh, the Bridal Mile uh, area in Portland. So it's kind of uh, in the middle of the triangle of 217, 26, and I-5. Interesting. Okay. They call that what? It's it's the Bridal Mile uh, neighborhood. There's an elementary school named Bridal Mile. Gotcha. I don't think I'd ever heard that before. Yeah. Well, cool. Let me introduce Eric and just kind of tell you a little bit about him, and then we'll expand on some good questions we got for you. So Eric is a dad of three. You have two boys and a daughter. Mm-hmm. Your daughter is your youngest one. Is that? She is. She's uh, at, at U of O and she's her senior year. So just finishing up. Okay. That's interesting. Um, you have Jake and Nick. And Jake works for the company. Yep. And Nick. Nick is in the Navy. He went to the Naval Academy and now, so he's an officer uh, or officer uh, in the making and he's in the SEAL program. So uh, he is, uh, he's working towards that goal and um, progressing forward. Man, I love to hear that. I love Navy SEALs. Uh, I'm not one, but I have so much respect for Navy SEALs. It's unbelievable. You are an Oregon State grad, which is interesting that your daughter went to U of O. So what took you, so actually take us back a little bit. Where were you born? And uh, tell us a little little bit about your upbringing and uh, what makes you who you are today. That's really what I want to know. Yeah, so my parents met in San Francisco in a trolley car. My dad held her guitar, and uh, that's kind of how they, they met back then. I was born in Palo Alto, and um, and they really wished they held on to their, I think, 1,100-square-foot home at this point. It'd be worth quite a bit. Um, moved up to Hillsborough, Oregon, uh, by about the age of three, and lived there, uh, grew up there, went to high school there. However, for three years, second and fourth grade, for me, I was in Holland, so the Netherlands, just in uh, outside of Amsterdam, Amstelveen, and um, so that was a great experience, and uh, three years there uh, was interesting coming home um, after that journey. Yeah, wow. So you you grew up in Holland, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, so Eric is also a business owner. He's an Oregon State grad. We talked about that. He's a speaker. And I would call Eric a public figure, at least he is to me. Uh, he runs a mortgage company. He owns a mortgage company with a couple other people. So that's pretty high level. And you've been in the mortgage industry for now how long? Just over 27 years. Just over 27 years. You started, what, when you were 15? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't we wish, right? The, yeah, yeah. the hairline shows it. Okay, okay. So maybe you're in your 20s. So what took you guys to Holland? Because I don't think I knew that about you. Yeah. So at the time in Beaverton, Tektronix was pretty big. Tektronix could have been maybe the next Intel, but uh, but decided to take some wrong turns and, and didn't make it all the way that way. 
Uh, but they were doing three-year stints for people to, for the European division. At the same time, Nike was doing the same thing. So it's kind of interesting that I met a lot of people that were on a, a variety of their timelines over there uh, and even even re reunited with someone here in seventh grade uh, that had been there and my friend there. So that was pretty interesting. Wow. Got it. Got it. What did you learn from living in Holland for those, you said from second grade to fourth grade? It was. Yeah. What'd you learn? So uh, I would say that it was much more impactful than before and after here. Uh, I think it was a kind of a condensed um, opportunity to get exposed to a lot of things that a lot of people here either never get exposed to or get exposed to on vacation in a way that isn't the same as living there. And, you know, I think, uh, when you, when you ride your bike on hundred year old bridges or 200 year old bridges or drive a car across a 700 year old bridge, and you see the perspective of the communities there that have been around for a lot longer than, uh, particularly the West coast here, you know, in the United States, the East coast has some longer standing communities, but on the West coast, you know, hundred years is a long time or 150 years. And, and uh, seeing things that are well past that and communities that are well past that, it's, 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 uh, and things are a lot closer together, uh, it's, it's an interesting perspective going there, living there, coming home. Yeah, that's awesome. What were your parents like? Um, my parents are, are like, uh, um, they're still married. They're, uh, they're good. They're, uh, they're getting on in their years. So, uh, my dad walks my dog, uh, basically every weekday still. So, so that's fun. That was something that was picked up before COVID and still happening, you know, uh, as, as, uh, as we had work from home and all that. Um, it's great for him. Great for my dog. Uh, and my mom, um, was a stay at home mom for the most part. And, uh, she, um, she experienced some things in life that maybe were a challenge for her, uh, such that a lot of people don't experience her. Her dad was a pilot with Pan Am. And, uh, so she had a, I think it was a high school graduation experience where she got to tour the world on, uh, Pan Am with a friend. And they actually went down in a rice field in India, uh, in a 707 and meters and feet, I guess, had gotten confused by the pilots and they uh, took some tops off some houses, took some tops off some trees, wow. landed in a rice field and luckily almost everyone survived. So, so, uh, it was muddy and, and soft, I guess. So, um, so her experience then kind of in life, uh, was dictated by moments such as that and, and, uh, you know, we traveled to Europe obviously, but after that she didn't step on a, you know, she didn't board a plane again. So, so she overcame her fear enough to do that. And then, then, uh, then stayed at home. Yeah. I don't blame her. So how long have your parents been married then? Um, that would be, um, well over 50 years. Yeah. That's incredible. That's a great story. I don't think I knew that about your parents. Yeah. That's really neat. Well, we're going to talk about mortgages. We're going to talk about the Federal Reserve, and we're going to talk about secondary markets and whatever we, uh, I guess, questions come up, we can talk about that as well. Absolutely. You've been in the business now for, you said, 27 years. Yep. Um, that's, that's pretty incredible. Let's talk about what rates are doing right now. What's the Federal Reserve doing? How does the Federal Reserve impact long-term rates, or do they? Because everybody has the assumption that they do, and I'd like to hear from your perspective if they do or they don't? That's a great uh, question. And I think uh, it's hitting us right now, right in this time where there's, I would say, uh, unsettled market conditions where, uh, where you have day-to-day -day movements that are typical more of a week or a month. And um, you can have intraday movements that, you know, start low, end up high, and start high, end up low. 
And uh, what that means is, you know, it's kind of universally seen out there that interest rates have risen. And so they've risen in the mortgage space, you know, around 3% at the beginning of the year to in the right around 7%, you know, now. So, so a more than doubling of the interest rate in just uh, 10 months. And, um, and so that's uh, kind of extreme. Uh, you know, I would say that uh, by perspective, uh, when I got in the business, rates were almost 9%. So, so I did refinances at eight and five eights. I did refinances at eight and a quarter. And those people were very happy to get out of their double digit interest rates. So, so everything's kind of in perspective. I think a lot of people misconstrue that, and people that have been in the industry now for 15 years have the same um, observations that that they understood that rates in the fives were normal and rates in the fours were you know good and three was like excellent, but. They don't understand that actually, if you go back over time, you know, the trackable time of mortgage-backed securities, then you have rates more in the seven and a quarter, seven and a half on average. And yeah, that takes into account uh, some peaks, but it also takes into account the valleys. And um, and I think that we're seeing two things happen. We're seeing an unwinding of quantitative easing in mortgage-backed securities. And what that really translates to is the government was buying some of the debt, which means it was bought at a lower price than the open market would have bought it for. So so it was a discounted uh, price here for probably about 12 years, let's just say. It's post, post the uh, mortgage meltdown of, of 15 years ago. And so so that is one effect we're seeing right now, the unwinding of that. We're also seeing the world's economies uh, go through some reset and um, and checkpoints. And, and so, you know, we infused a lot of money into the system over the last few years. We're seeing that that amount of money chasing fewer goods has caused those goods to, to rise in price. And that rise in price is called inflation. And we pay it at the pump. We pay it at the store. We pay it when we buy a car. And so, um, so when that happens, the Fed is saying, hey, interest rates have gotten a little bit, uh, excuse me, inflation rate has gotten a little bit out of control. We like to bring that back down. Well, their main tool, as we've seen, is raising the, the federal funds rate. And, and that uh, basically affects prime. It affects uh, everything that is factored off of a baseline interest rate. And um, that said, we've seen the increase, therefore, in interest rates this year. Got it. <clears throat> that was a great explanation on um, quantitative easing, what the feds are doing. What what I heard you say is that the federal funds rate doesn't directly affect long-term rates. They use it as a tool to control inflation. Was, is that true? Is that what you – Well, that's that's a tool that they're using right okay. now, uh, and they've used it in the past to control uh, basically um, economic activity. They'd like to slow down economic activity so that – the amount of, you know, um, inflation. So again, all those people chasing those products and, and bidding up those products prices, they're looking to slow that down. And by, by making it more painful, if you buy on credit, by making companies that have uh, warehouse lines uh, like we do for, because um, believe it or not, we don't lend every $500,000 mortgage, we, we, we send money for, it's not coming out of a bank account, it's coming out of a credit line that then we replenish. Well, you have uh, manufacturers do the same thing, uh, farmers do the same thing. So you've got these lines of credit that are utilized by businesses. If you make those lines of credit more expensive, those businesses are going to slow down a little bit. And and um, so they're they're um, affecting you know the the overall economy by trying to slow it down so that inflation slows down. Yeah, that makes sense. What does uh, the forecast for like twenty twenty three? Because 
most people want to know what are rates going to do? Are they going to go up? Because people like they're freaking out. They're, they're remembering. Some people remember 1980 when rates were at double digits, like high double digits. Do you think that rates will continue to go up, stabilize, or eventually come down? What do you think? Or what's your educated uh, advice here? Obviously, this is a huge disclaimer kind of kind of situation because none of us has a crystal ball, and we didn't see what was going to happen with COVID. You know, in the in the housing market and interest rates, we didn't see that happen uh, before it did. And since uh, since then, we didn't see this fall off happen, you know, so fast. I mean, it's it's one thing to have things, you know, business increase or, or activity increase in a market sector, but to have it be, you know, skyrocket, it's on steroids, and all of a sudden it's off steroids, and it's you know, uh, kind kind of coming down uh, quickly. Um, you know, it's it's difficult to uh, to forecast what that looks like, but I think um, I think in my experience. And what I've seen of historical charts, when you have an overreaction of one kind, you're going to get a reaction the other way. So, so a lot of people think that this uh, this we're leading up into a recession, and in recession, most of the time interest rates are falling, not not rising. And so, uh, because of what they realize is the economy just got hurt, so now we need to stimulate the economy. So, so we we're in this kind of uh, yo-yo uh, situation, uh, especially amplified by COVID shutdowns, uh, things that were unexpected. Um, we're, we're trying to ramp out, out of that. We maybe came out too hard. Now they're going to slow us down, but they're going to slow us down too much. And then we're going to have a recession, which then uh, will probably lead to lower interest rates again. I think everyone's kind of factored that in. We're also, you mentioned the short-term interest rates. So that's what our, that's what the, that's what the dial really is that the Fed has is the short-term interest rates and long-term interest rates are fed off of that. Uh, when you have normal situations, if you had a longer term of an interest rate, it's normally going to yield a higher, a higher rate. But what we're seeing right now is between the two, the three, the five, the seven, the 10, you see an inverted yield curve, which means that longer term rates are anticipated to be lower in the future than the short term would indicate. That is great news for a home buyer, in my opinion. So, yeah, I look back over time and, and I see rates in the sevens or eights, and now we see rates in the twos or threes. So when rates go back to, to seven or eight percent, we think that's bad, but really in a way that's normal. Yeah, I think um, so. My estimate, if I was just to give advice, is you know to our own people, to the people in real estate lending uh, to the people in the market, to people that might be a home buyer here soon, is that you're, you know, the, the likelihood of a three or 4%, that would be actually a real big problem for the economy. So that would indicate we have a challenge. To see a five, a six, maybe a seven be the first number next year uh, throughout parts of the year is probably going to be expected. So, mm -hmm. so if we shoot past that by the end of the year, my guess is we will come back down to what is more of a sustainable long-term uh, pattern, and that would be um, that would be probably with a five, six, or seven, you know, as the starting uh, number in that interest rate. And interestingly, I put out a poll on LinkedIn that was questioning what, over time what has had a higher rate of, um, I guess you could call it appreciation or interest rate, housing or interest rate. So in any given year, would the average uh, interest rate for, for housing finance or would the average appreciation of a home 
be higher. And almost everyone answered that the home appreciation would be higher. But historically, that's in the two to four percent, where interest rates have been historically more in the six, seven, eight, you know, percent averages. And so, so it's an inverted way of thinking that you're going to get more appreciation out of your house than the interest rate that you're going to that you're going to um, have on a loan if you have a loan on on that home. And and so I think we're coming out of such a long spell, a decade plus, that people have gotten it kind of backwards. We we normally have interest rates that are higher than an annual appreciation of a home. Yeah. So with uh, home appreciation in the last couple of years at what fifteen to twenty percent, depending on what market you're in. That's interesting. Interesting to me. Then you think about supply and demand. As as rates go up higher, what is supply and demand doing right now? Because it seems like the market slowed quite a bit. You know, refinances have gone away. There's still purchases there, but what is supply and demand going to do? What drives what? Do, do rates drive the market, or does supply and demand? You know, that's a great question. I think also fear so <clears throat> or memory. So so a lot of times markets have short-term memory. The events in the real estate lending world and in mortgage-backed securities and in commercial-backed securities, everything securities, there's a lot of memory of what happened 15 years ago and leading up to 15 years ago. So home builders this time are not extending themselves into just finishing out, you know, like finishing out strong for the year or something. They've already started to taper back the amount of units that they're putting out and they want to make sure that there's buyers for those units. And and the shock in the interest rate from going, if you qualified at 3% and then you went looking for a home and now it's 4%, 5%, 6%, so forth, you know, there's been a little shock and a little shuffling of who's um, committed to buying a home. That said, you have a lot of people trapped in the home with a great rate. So we call it rate locked into the home where you have someone that's at 3%, let's just say 4%. And they're looking at today's interest rates. They won't go necessarily go downsize or upsize today because the cost is a lot different than what they have in their current rate. So that reduces the amount of inventory. If the builders are putting out less inventory, if the home sellers or homeowners that could be home sellers decide to sit on the sidelines for right now, that means the available stock of homes for sale is reduced. And if you recall, in the last few years, we've had quite a low inventory of homes available for sale. So Though the though the interest rates have made home ownership, if you're borrowing, more expensive, you also now have an even reduced supply of homes that are available. What's the upside? The upside is homes don't crash. The downside, they're not going to get less expensive, and and so um, so you know you have to re- reconsider your strategy. But the amount of homes for sale is probably going to be fairly low for an extended period of time, we were already looking at being underbuilt for the next decade. Now I would say, I would say that's even amplified. Interesting. Yeah. I think people do focus on rates, but really there's not enough inventory based on what you're saying. If somebody has a two or 3% rate, they're not going to sell and go buy a new home because of that higher rate. And they're going to be on the sideline until rates do change. Now there's still a market, right? Good market, bad market. There's still a market. People still need to buy and sell. It's just a smaller percentage. You had, you'd mentioned a little bit ago uh, LinkedIn. Now, I know you're a big LinkedIn fan. There's a lot of platforms out there. You know, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, probably uh, TikTok. You've picked LinkedIn as your one thing. And I, obviously, I follow you on LinkedIn. Why did you pick LinkedIn? That's a great question. So, I have a little different perspective being one, one owner of the company. You know, I've got great partners. 
And we're expanding nationally. So in expanding nationally, um, I think that if I was a loan originator, I think, you know, your more local uh, social media is better. Instagram, Facebook, you know, these kinds of things where there's a lot of local connection. I'm trying to expand the company reach and the, and the visibility past that and in a professional sense. So I decided to spend my time with LinkedIn and, and have over, you know, I, I think when I started, I had, you know, less than a thousand uh, connections. And buddy, I think actually you were one of my inspirations. Uh, you had much more than I did. And I said, okay, I got to chase this out. How, how did you do it? And, and so started, you know, on purpose, adding people to it, but also creating some content that hopefully has generated some interest, which I think has now started to increase, you know, my, uh, my connections. I'm over 6,000 now and, and growing. So, um, so I think that, uh, I'm more of a, a flagpole bearer for the company than I am someone who's trying to, uh, generate business and create connections and relationships and maintain them, uh, locally. So as one of the owners of Pacres Mortgage, we're expanding locally. How many states are we in? So licensed-wise, we're about 35 of the 50. And um, from a physical presence standpoint, less than that, I'd say, you know, I, I'm just reaching out of the top of my head. It's probably about, you know, 15 plus uh, states that we're actually physically in. But on the West Coast, there's three states on the coast. And on the East Coast, there's many states on the coast. And so what you do is you obviously get licensed in peripheral states because, you know, people cross borders or they've got, you know, friends and family that are across borders of states. So so the licensing is, is greater than the amount of states we're physically in. Got it. So we were once... Pacific Residential Mortgage. We rebranded to Pacres Mortgage because we're no longer in the Northwest. We are on the East Coast, Midwest. Are we planning on going to all states? I don't know that answer, but love to hear from you on that. So, in in the type of business that we do, and we're you know, buddy, you know it well. We're referral based. We are community based. We do create long standing relationships. We're the kind of people that want to see see our clients and, and referral sources at the grocery store, and people come together instead of walk away, right? So, so we're not um, we're not a distanced, um, you know, transactionally based uh, entity. So we will kind of go where the people. Uh, tell us to go versus build it and they will come. So we're not going to build offices and, and hope for the best. We want, we're, we're based on who are the people in the market? Who are they serving? Can we, can we then grow that? And from there, can we launch out maybe with some satellite opportunities and, and be in the communities that are kind of requesting that we're in them versus, uh, versus the other way around and trying to, trying to build from scratch. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. When you think of LinkedIn, what are three strategies you do on a daily basis, like how often do you post? Do you believe in video? How do you create content? Something like that. Yeah, that's great. So, um, do I believe in video? Yes. And is it pounded into our heads? Yes. And and do we look at other people's videos and go, dang, I need to do that? Uh, there's a lot of fear around video. You know, I, I just yesterday, um, one of the people in one of our branches who I saw uh, had just posted her first video and she was very saw nervous, that. took a lot of takes on it. Um, of course, we all saw the finished product online, but there's a lot of buildup to that. So, so uh, I think with anything, the more you do it, the better you become, but also the more comfortable you become and the less judgmental of yourself you become. So, so I think even with the written word where you can edit it and, you know, do post that way, I think, I think you need to mix it up. In my opinion, I think people that are one track, like only videos or only something, only, only photos on there or, or something, 
Um, that's not as interesting, at least it's not as interesting to me. So I'm, I'm trying to create and, and connect in a way that is right for me. And, and I think varying it up, I think, um, inspirational wise, I'm not really a seven days a week. Like I have to do something or Tuesdays are this and Wednesdays are this. I, I don't think that really, um, works for me. And, uh, so I try to make it <clears throat> relevant. I'll post more than once if it's relevant. I'll not post if it's not relevant and uh, try to make it meaningful. And so, so I think in our business, we've learned a lot that less is more, but, but trying to do less when you're trying to do outbound is, is interesting because you, you have, it's almost a, a conflict, but as long as you have enough out there, uh, I think the other thing is, I think, uh, with any of this content, we over, um, we overvalue what any individual component is and we undervalue what the momentum of doing it, you know, enough to get noticed is. And, and we also think that, I mean, some of the posts I put out that I thought were going to get a lot of traction, almost got nothing. And the ones that were medium sometimes to me took off, you know, whether for whatever reason, um, I don't think there's any rhyme or reason I could figure out except that, okay, sometimes I need to get out of myself and put out what people seem to be interested in. Yeah. One, I'm just going to tell you a quick story. I had a coach probably two years ago. He said, uh, before Thanksgiving, the day before Thanksgiving, you're going to sit in your car and send out 50 videos. I'm like, are you kidding me? He's like, nope. So I did that. I was in, I sent 50 videos. It could be friends, family, realtors, didn't matter. What I found is that by doing that over repetition, I got over the fear of doing video. So then we came up with the idea, I began to challenge other people in the, in the branch that you also have to send the first take, no matter how good or bad it is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be perfect. The, the consistency and the progress and not worrying about what you look like, it's the content of what you say that means more than anything. And so that helped me get over the fear and then I began to challenge other people in the branch to, so you're going to, hey, you ready for a challenge? Well, what is it? No, no, no. You have to accept the challenge before I tell you what it is. True story, by the way. And so they would send out 50 videos. I would be the 50th video they would send. But what they all found, and this will be an encouragement to everyone listening, is that they were reaching people like, well, even grandma. So one lady in our office sent a video to her grandma during COVID when grandma wasn't able to see anybody. And grandma watched it like three or four times and was crying. That was message back. So video means a lot. So don't worry about what you look like. You look like you look, you know, I know we're all surprised at how we look and how we talk, but we're not, it's not surprising to anybody else. So send the videos. I listened to a podcast by Steve Cows. He's a mortgage guy, coach. He would say anything worth doing is worth doing badly just get started. That became my mantra for the year of everything I'm doing. And it's scary. I get it. But go do it anyway. How would you say about that? What, what are you doing, Eric, that's outside your comfort zone? You're like, but I'm going to go do it anyway. Because you're doing it. Yeah. So I think um, <clears throat> you you have to make it an emphasis. You have to... Um, and, and everything to what you said, I love, uh, what you mentor me, buddy, when, when we have, uh, you know, breakfast with buddy for me now, it's conversations with buddy right here. And, 
um, I walk away with a little, either a little bit more clarity of thought, a little bit more motivation, a little bit more, okay, don't do this, focus on this instead. And, um, so direction. And I think that, uh, we all, um, get our, in our own way, you know? So if, if, uh, uh, like I've spent some time in the gym and I know that you don't go in there one day and have these leaps and bounds uh, of, of improvements, of self-improvement, of confidence, of you know actual physical output improvement. You have to go many times, and some days are better than others. But you still have to go on the days that aren't good because those are the days that actually lead to the good days. So, so I think um, I think when we look at this, we we try to uh, think about one hit wonders and how many likes or how many how much attention am I going to get. Whereas uh, we're going to get attention over over time, we're going to get uh, feedback over time, we're going to get learning learning over time, and and also things adjust. So if we put out exactly what we were putting out two years ago um, on anything, basically in, in in business and with communication, then it's probably stale or it's probably not up to the time. So so uh, your your first something, you know, you pick up a golf club and you swing. And then you're at the driving range for 30 minutes. My guess is you're by the 30, 30th minute, you're, if you're not worn out, you're probably shooting a lot straighter and the club feels a lot better, but you take that first swing and it's cold. It's, it doesn't feel good. You know, it's just not right. So a lot of people stop there. A lot of people don't go to the range or they stop at that first swing or two, the duff stuff, you know, the, you top the ball and you're like, Oh man, I'm embarrassed. And, and you don't get to where the, where you're having that sweet spot where, where things are just moving. And, uh, and I'm not a great golfer, by the way, my son Jake is, but I'm not. And, um, but, but they don't press past it and in pressing past it, you actually grow, you know, you actually start to understand what it took to get there and what it, um, what it took other people to get there. And, you know, I think in this business, uh, we see a lot of visuals. We see a lot of success stories. We see a lot of uh, indications of success. What we don't see is 20 years ago what those people were doing. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's the grinded out, the 12 hours a day, the 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 outtakes, the, the phone calls that didn't go well that they try to then improve upon on the next one. I think we see the finished product and think I need to instantly be that. And, and that is a misnomer that's not going to happen. You know, I've talked deeply about this subject. Uh, somebody's been around for 20 plus years. And in our company, we have many people have been around for 25 years. There was blood, sweat, and tears for decades. And then the finished product is somebody's doing 10, 20, 30 loans a month. And somebody new coming in might go, oh, this is easy. and But they don't see any of the, the two decades of blood, sweat, and tears of grinding it out. And we're actually not doing people a, a very good service by not explaining that. And I get that. So, yeah, that's interesting. So how do we how do we explain to people that are new in the industry? Because we need new people coming in the industry. We need to coach them. What would you say? And I'll just I'll just preface this here. I think there's a Navy SEAL story here, but uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on how you would say if you're new or you've been in the business for five years or less. What does somebody need to do to really become a top uh, mortgage advisor? that does 10, 15, 20, 30 loans a month. What's that look like? Well, I think actually now is the proving ground. Now is the boot camp that everyone should go through when they first get in the business. And I think 
anyone that thought the last couple of years were that boot camp, no, the phone rings and you answer it. That's, that's not the, uh, that's not the way. And, um, and so you don't refine yourself and you don't build yourself with good habits in a time of abundance. You, you build it when things are not abundant and uh, you learn your lessons when things are harder to come by and, uh, you also appreciate it more. So when, I mean, just like in life and anything, if you, if you had to earn it, most likely you're going to appreciate it better than if it was given to you. And, and I think that, um, there's a lot of people in today's world client, you know, economic, um, environment where, uh, they're kind of looking for it to be given to them. And I, I see the success stories of, you know, most of the success stories I'm aware of or have been a part of, or I've witnessed it's because someone had to grind it through and, and it wasn't just lots of hours and it was repetitions of what the, what you're doing, you know, repetitions of presentations, repetitions of phone calls, reworking a phone call in your head going, why did that not end well? You know, and, or why did I not, why did I not deliver what I was trying to deliver well? And, um, you know, communication, cutting down less is more, but, and listening to your client, you know, I think, uh, one of the biggest things up front is people try to tell their story to someone instead of finding out the story of the, someone they're talking to before you can find a solution. You have to find out what the problem is. And, and if you just assume what the problem is, then you're oftentimes providing the wrong thing or getting off track in the conversation from the value items that you could actually, you know, obtain, or observe, obtain, and bring forward in a solution-oriented uh, way. Sounds like listening is a very important part of this whole process as being a better listener. You know, it's, it's like you mentioned the golf, uh, going to the golf range, and I was going to ask you about your golf game, but you already told me, so I won't ask you about that. <laughs> but uh, if I go to the driver range once a week and I hit for 30 minutes, I might improve slightly. But if I go to the driver range every morning – and maybe I hit a hundred balls. I'm getting more, more swings. I'm becoming, I'm creating muscle memory and I'm creating a habit and consistency. There's a grind there. You have, you have to show up at the driver range when you don't want to. So I, I heard that story. Well, Hey, we're, we're getting close to wrapping up, but, uh, a couple more questions for you. Uh, that's, that I think is gonna be fun is, uh, what is a favorite place you've traveled to? And then, Maybe end on what's something you do for fun. That's great. So a favorite place I've traveled to, I had the benefit of going to Europe as a as a kid. So I haven't really visited Europe um, uh, except for Italy. And uh, so Italy was beautiful as an adult. I, I've got to say I would definitely want to go back there. Um, I think there's places in Europe I'd like to go revisit uh, as an adult over being a kid. I think anywhere sunny, so your Hawaii's, your your Mexico's, your your anything uh, with a beach that uh, you can actually relax at, I think is uh, is quite nice too. But I would say uh, as an adult, the best vacation I probably took was Italy. Yeah, I've been to Italy. I love that place too. What do you What do you do for fun? What's the What's fun, Eric? Do so fun Eric has a German shepherd that likes to go out to do stuff. And so whether it's parks every day or, um, you know, bigger hikes or taking him somewhere where he can swim and chase stuff in the water. Uh, I do that. I used to mountain bike and I need, probably need to get back into that. I do work out lift weights. I know that's not necessarily fun, but it is kind of because, uh, I feel, um, it's one of those habits over time that I've picked up that if you don't do it, you don't feel good. If you do it, you feel good. So, so that I enjoy, uh, buddy, frankly, um, you know, conversations like this or, 
or, um, I look forward to, to, you know, you're into mentoring, you're into, um, helping people, um, see things or, or, you know, work through things. And, and I think that, um, that I find value in that too. So, so it's interesting, um, that you might say that, you know, work is fun, but at times it really is. And, and, um, and I probably need to pick up some hobbies, you know, with three kids, you know, they're, they're your hobby, right? So different sports, different, I mean, I had three kids in three different types of sports. So you're, you're really committed when that's happening. And, um, so I probably need to find some hobbies that are not kid related that, uh, that I can pursue. Well, it sounds to me like you kind of already do that. And sometimes I think my wife and I've talked about, oh, we got to create hobbies, but really the things we love doing, we love traveling, eating out, reading, learning, growing movies. So in a way our prior priority is really just spending time together doing fun things, fun things that we enjoy. And I know that during COVID, you had uh, built a gym in your house. Let's I, wrap. I let's, let's wrap up on that. There, I'd like to hear about that. Well, it's kind of interesting. So this this has been a uh, podcast about, um, and I've seen some of your other or heard of some of your other work, and it's about overcoming something. So I I picked up my first weight in seventh grade when I got picked on on the bus, and so I was uh, I was in uh, seventh grade with up to seniors on the bus route. Uh, I was the one of the last stops and. It was the classic, everyone scoots to the middle and doesn't let the little kid, you know, uh, sit next to him and gum in the hair and this kind of thing. So I thought, okay, what can I control out of this? And and so those plastic, you know, dumbbell kind of things and and pretty soon the weights got bigger and pretty soon, uh, you know, I was I was finding some success with it uh, in, internally and externally. And um, I found that the habits, though, built were that you push through, like, like you start feeling pain, that whole pain, no gain thing, uh, no pain, no gain is real from the standpoint of don't go hurt yourself, but push yourself through what you thought was a limit. And all of a sudden the limit, uh, gets moved. Right. And, and it doesn't get moved permanently, but it does get moved for a while. So, so if you stay with it, it gets moved more permanently. If you, if you lose track, you don't, and then you have to get back, back into the game and, and that limit starts pressing forward. So I find that um, working out in the gym is big. So with COVID, you couldn't do that. And I needed to do that. And I recognized that I had the opportunity to turn a bedroom into a, into a, what looks like a real gym, rubber matting, you know, nice equipment and TV sound system, all that kind of stuff. So I actually dress to go to the gym and then enter that room. And that's my gym for 30, 45 an hour. And uh, it's got mirrors, it got everything, you know, that makes you feel like you're at the gym. Hey, that's pretty awesome. I'd like to actually see a picture of that. And you may have showed me a picture when you first did it. I don't remember what it looks like, but I might have to copy what you've done. Absolutely. As we wrap up, um, is there anything final that you'd want to say to a mortgage originator out there? Or what piece of advice would you give somebody? Just one last thing. Uh, I would say don't give up. So, So two things. Don't do things that will not work. You know, you have to sometimes explore what that might be, but do things that have a high likelihood of working and then don't give up. I've seen people give up um, three months, four months in, and then frankly, they, they give up, leave, and everyone else in the branch gets the, the fruits of their labor. So, so I'd say, you know, give it the amount of time and effort that it that is due, but give it the duration of that time and effort. Um, to, to actually pay some results. And, and it's not like farmers 
put seeds in the spring and then instantly there's crop, you know, you, you have to, you have to do all the things around that to have a, a yield of, of a good crop. And, um, and sometimes it's luck, good weather and bad weather, but you have to press forward regardless. And, and so, um, so I think, think like a farmer, think in six month cycles, don't think in, uh, like what you do today, what good habit you pick up today will not yield results for four to six months. And I think that's key. Wow. That's well said. Yeah. Think like a farmer. Well, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, Eric, I know you're big on LinkedIn. What would you prefer them a way for them to contact you. Yeah, LinkedIn's great. Um, my email at work, obviously, if people um, have an interest that way, is eric.wiley at packresmortgage.com. So E-R-I-C period W-I-L-E-Y at packresmortgage.com. P-A-C-R-E-S mortgage spelled out dot com. Perfect. Thanks so much. Well, hey, we appreciate you listening today to our podcast. We would appreciate if you would like, share, comment, Also, feedback, Uh, if you have somebody that would love to be a part of our show, please reach out to me. My email is buddyp7 at gmail.com, and I'd love to hear from you, and then we look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great week.